Welcome to 21. I'm Drew Lasker. I'm a family man, professional athlete, and business owner of Train Harder 21 and 21 Media. Yvonne Harris and I have teamed up and created this podcast to explore the life lessons that come along with being an athlete. Y21 is my jersey number and a key part to my great fortune and career. So it seems fitting for this podcast. Hi, I'm Yvonne Harris. I'm a proud boy mom and an advocate for efforts that improve the lives of women and children. Experiencing success as an athlete or in any facet of life does not happen by accident. There must be clarity, intention, and the willingness to pivot. Our guests on 21 share their journeys in ways that cause you to reflect, assess, and then take action. We are so thankful for the stories shared on this podcast because Drew and I know their wisdom shortens someone else's path to success. Enjoy this episode of 21. Welcome to 21. Life is about evolution, challenging the status quo, and becoming the best version of yourself. Today's guest knows that all too well. She's everything from a CEO, executive producer, podcaster, and award-winning broadcast journalist. She's former KPRC NBC affiliate in Houston, Texas, Linda Laurel. Linda, welcome to 21. Thank you, Drew. It's so wonderful to be here with you and Yvonne today. Thank you so much for inviting me. We always love spending time with you, Linda. You're amazing. <laughs> oh, I could say the same about both of you. <laughs> We've got a mutual fan club going on here. Yes. Definitely. Well, we appreciate your time today. And to start it off, before we dive deep into your story, we're going to just provide a little loosener, you know, a little warm up okay, uh, with a game that we call 21 Questions with 21. So we're going to throw you right in the hot seat, Linda. You ready? Okay, I guess so. <laughs> Let's go for it. <laughs> Whataburger or In N Out? Whataburger. Nike or Adidas? Nike. Beer or tequila? Oh, tequila for sure. <laughs> beach or mountains? Beach. Definitely beach. Tupac or Biggie? Biggie. Jordan or LeBron? Oh, Jordan. <laughs> there we There's a go. story there. You should ask me about that story. No, you shouldn't. <laughs> but yeah, Jordan. <laughs> now we're intrigued. We have to ask you. <laughs> Putting it in the notes right now. Okay. <laughs> Texans or Cowboys? Oh, Texans. Popeyes or Chick-fil-A? Oh, that's hard because it kind of depends on the day, but I would say Popeyes. <laughs> Two for Tuesdays. <laughs> Las Vegas or Miami? Vegas. IHOP or Waffle House? IHOP. East Coast or West Coast? West Coast. Early Bird or Night Owl? Oh, Night Owl for sure. <laughs> Grilled or fried? Grilled. Car or truck? Car. Bluebell or Haagen-Dazs? Bluebell, baby. Bluebell. Vanilla. <laughs> Coke or Pepsi? Pepsi. Summer or winter? 
winter if it's a Texas winter, since I grew up in Chicago. <laughs> But I love、yeah. the Texas winter. I like cool weather. I like snuggling. I like, you know, bundling up. I like fireplaces. So I'd rather be cold and get warm. It's hard to cool off when you're really hot. Xbox or PlayStation? You know, I- I've never done either. So it's a toss up. Dishes or laundry? <laughs> laundry. <laughs> city or country? City. I'm a city girl. And finally, to go with that tequila, are you a club <laughs> or house party type of girl?、Um, I would say I'm a house party type of girl now. Back in the day, I was club. <laughs> But not now. <laughs> <laughs> Linda, you are now off the hot seat. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for、I'm、playing, sure Linda. That. Okay. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> so, you talked about a, a little bit in that game that you, you're from Chicago. So, just talk a little bit about, you know, about your upbringing. Yeah. So, I'm a South Side girl, grew up on the South Side of Chicago,、um, just like Michelle Obama, actually, not that far from, from where she lived.、Um, did not know her at the, at the time.、Um, but yeah,、um, my dad was a, a doctor, a pediatrician, and he taught pediatrics and adolescent medicine. My mom was a stay at home mom. I have an older brother, so it's just the two of us. And、um, I had a really wonderful childhood, you know, just. Parents who really instilled in my brother and me the importance of getting a good education. My dad, as I said, was a physician. His dad was a physician as well. And、um, on my mom's side of the family,、uh, she grew up in Nashville. So my parents met at Fisk. And my, let's see, my grandfather on my mom's side of the family was a dentist. So I've got doctors and dentists that go back generations on both sides of the family, which is pretty cool. So,、um, Chicago was great. Started off in public school,、uh, transferred to a private girls' school when I was in fifth grade. And I ended up graduating from high school、um, from that school. And,、um, and then I went off to Stanford after that. But, Linda, you didn't follow the doctor path. You、no. were interested in dancing and acting. So, what sparked、yeah. that for you? You know, I took my first ballet class when I was four. And so I, It just kind of sparked something in me. I continued dancing all the way through, really. I mean, I'm still dancing, but it just spoke to me. Theater and dance just really spoke to me. And I started, you know, from ballet, I did jazz and then African and then tap and, you know, all of it. So、um, my, my dad used to tell me, because I, I spent a couple of summers working in his office when I was a teenager. And he would say to me, you know, I think you'd make one hell of a pediatrician and, because I love kids. And,、um, but it just, you know, it just wasn't my thing. And to his credit and my mom's credit, they allowed me to pursue my passion, which was not an easy thing for them to do, I'm sure. You know, after four years of Stanford, when I tell my parents that I'm going to be a dancer, that was kind of a rough conversation. <laughs> but, but they, you know, they were like, okay. So、if that's what you want to do, then you know, go for it. So that's what I did. How did you make the decision to go from the south side of Chicago to Stanford? 
You know, so that school that I went to was a college prep school. It was a day school, but it was very heavy on, you know, academics. And the girls who went through the school got into some of the best schools in the country. And so Stanford was on my radar because of its ranking and, you know, what it meant as an elite school and something that we talked about a lot in, um, in my school. And then ended up going to the Rose Bowl one year when Stanford was playing. And uh, I'm a football fan. And that kind of, you know, edged it up the list. And um, just the fact that it was such a, a phenomenal school. And I liked the size of it as well, that it wasn't, you know, 50,000 undergrads. Um, it, at the time, and I, I don't know what the enrollment numbers are now, but at the time, I think undergraduate, there were maybe 5,000, maybe 6,000 students. I think the total enrollment was like 11,000 between undergrad and grad. So that's pretty small. Um, and I had come from, I was coming from a small school. Um, so I don't know, just um, there was something about the, um, I guess the culture there and the, the cachet that the Stanford name has in terms of just being able to help get doors open. And, and quite frankly, I wasn't sure I was gonna get in. It's a hard school to get into. And if you are in state, it's a little easier. Out of state students at that time were very you know, few and far between. So I applied and I had other schools that were my safe schools, if you will. But once I got that letter, it was like, oh my gosh, I'm going. So, and it was great. I had a fabulous four years there. I really did. Well, and you not only went to, I guess, the school of your dreams at the time, but then you opted to major in developmental psychology and Italian. So what inspired the pursuit of those majors? (laughs) It's like, what? (laughs) What were you thinking, right? (laughs) Okay. So developmental psychology, I mentioned I love kids. And I thought at some point that I would want to open a school for inner city kids to have the same kind of fantastic education that so many other students are afforded because they are growing up in more affluent communities. When I was at Stanford, I got a chance to work at the Bing Nursery School, which was actually part of the curriculum there. And to see the the level of education that was being offered to the students who went to that preschool was just incredible. And so developmental psychology with the idea of doing something with children later on in my life. Italian was purely just a joyous thing that happened. So I had actually studied eight years of French by the time I got to Stanford. So I was fluent in French. But then it was time to look at where I was going to go for my my junior year abroad. And I had visited Italy the summer before I went to Stanford. My mom took a girlfriend and me on a trip. And we visited Spain, Italy, Greece, and France. And I had a chance to practice my French in France. And it was interesting to me that people would, I would speak French, and I have pretty good French accent. I would speak French and more often than not, they would answer me in English. And I just felt that that was such a slap in the face. On the other hand, when I was in Italy, you could say, buongiorno. And they would say, oh, Maria grazia, oh, madonna mia. And they would just, go, I mean, any attempt at speaking the language was welcomed with a smile and open arms. And even if you were butchering it, and I thought, okay, 
when I get to college, I want to go to Italy. I don't want to go to France. And so my freshman year, I started taking Italian. And so back to back for the first two years, I took French one, one, like at 10 o'clock I had French and 11 o'clock I had Italian. And then when it was time to apply, I just decided I want to go, definitely want to go to the Italian campus, which was in Florence. And so I spent my junior first semester in Florence. And when I got back to the home campus, I just loved everything Italian. By the time I got back, I was fluent. And I just continued to take the classes because I enjoyed it. And then I realized if I just doubled up a couple of semesters, I'd have the equivalent of a degree. So why not? Right. So. So you're you're fluent in two in three languages. Well, I'm not currently fluent in French and Italian, but I can get there when I need to. You know, if I'm traveling, I will brush up on it. But yeah. So at the time I, I was I was fluent in both. And, and I find it. Oh, oh, sorry. I was just going to say, Yvonne, that I find it ironic because whenever I'm in France, I feel like they don't ever want to speak English. Like if you ask for directions or something like I feel like they don't ever. So I thought that was pretty funny that they answered yeah. you back in English. It's just, you know, it, and I, you know, I'm sure there are people who are French that might hear this. And I, I don't know. I mean, I have a lot of I have some very dear friends who are French, but I just felt not as welcomed there as I did in Italy. And I don't know, it just felt more granular for me. You know, it just felt, it just felt right. And, and actually, since then, when I did my 23andMe test, I found out that I do have some Italian blood for like way, 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 way back. That's coming to the surface now. <laughs> coming to the surface now, right? <laughs> so Linda, we oftentimes speak to a lot of students, young adults, student athletes, and I want to take a lesson though from what you just shared. When you're talking to young people, what is your advice to them about learning a second language and traveling abroad and just the opportunities and the doors that those things can open for you? Just do it. You know, we take so much for granted here in our country. And we have always kind of expected the world to come to us and to adhere to our norms. And we kind of feel like we're the standard, you know, up here. Um, And that's just not true. And I, I think that, you know, over these last few years, we've had a bit of a rude awakening. And I think that people from other countries are so much more educated about our country and we are so less educated about any place other than the United States because we think that we are the nucleus and the end all be all. And we need to get off of that high horse. And we have so much to learn from other cultures and other communities and other people. And a wonderful way to do that is to immerse yourself in another language. And, and it's fun. It's fun. You know, some, yeah. it's easier for some than others, but you don't have to be great at it. Just look at it as, a, as an opportunity to learn. And like you said, Yvonne, to open doors because you just never know. Yeah. And I'll, I'll give you an example. So I mentioned that I have some good friends who are French. So when I was working at KPRC, I did a story. I was, I was meeting someone to, to do a, an interview, and it was the author of the book, French Women Don't Get Fat. Her name is Mireille Giuliano. She is the former CEO of Veuve Clicquot, Clicquot Champagne. And she had been the CEO of that company for like 20 years. And she was still the CEO at the time that I met her. And she was on a book tour and she came to Houston and she was on the tour for French Women Don't Get Fat. 
And so I took her to Central Market to do an interview with her talking about, you know, fresh foods and how she would select certain vegetables and fruits for her menus and whatnot. And so during the course of that, I started speaking French with her and she was so impressed. And then we just started talking and talking and talking. And we had a wonderful interview. I did this story. Not too long after that, I get an email from her inviting me to go to Provence in the south of France as her guest, along with a group of really high-powered women from all over the world to spend uh, 14 juillet, Bastille Day, in Provence with her at her invitation. That all happened because I could speak French and I was able to engage in conversation with her. We are, and I can't even tell you all the things that have come out of that one. I went back for a second time, a couple years later. And to this day, we are dear friends and other doors of, and opportunities opened up as a result of that first encounter with her that day in Central Market when I spoke a little French. That's you never amazing. know. Yeah, you're right. You never and, know. You know, you talk about how important it is for Americans to travel outside the country. I mean, it, it makes mm -hmm. you more well-rounded. But moving on, after undergrad there at Stanford, mm -hmm. you transition into a professional career of dancing and acting, mm -hmm. which I'm pretty sure a lot of your fans, they probably don't know that side of you. So <laughs> let's revisit that a little bit. What was that like? Oh, it was, it was fabulous. It was so much fun. You know, when I think back, it was just such a carefree time in my life where, you know, I was just going from class to class and performance to performance and, you know, supporting myself in a variety of different ways. Let's so when I first graduated, um, I ended up working at an ad agency in San Francisco for a while. Um, and I was still pursuing my dance. Ultimately, I ended up going back to Chicago and I danced in a company there for three years. I got my actor's equity card while I was in Chicago doing theater. And then I ended up moving to Denver to dance with a company called the Cleo Parker Robinson Dance Ensemble, still going strong. That company is doing phenomenal work. And when I was living in Denver, I would, you know, take class all day, rehearse all day. And then I waited tables at night. And, um, you know, it was just such a, a fun, exciting time in my life. Then ultimately, I left Denver and I, I went to New York to try my hand at Broadway. And I was auditioning for Broadway shows, doing really well, getting close to being cast in, in a couple of shows. And then uh, I was in a class one day, Frank Hatchett, that was the name of the, the dancer, was, and he was, he was a, this fabulous jazz dancer and had a, a, um, a studio on the Upper West Side. And I was in his class one day, it was a two-hour jazz class. And about an hour and 45 minutes into the class, I went to do a jump and I twisted and snapped my gastroxoleus muscle in my left calf. And when I heard the snap and Drew, you're an athlete, so you know, there's good pain and there's bad pain, yeah. right? So this was the worst pain I had ever felt. And I knew that it was bad. I don't even know how I made it home. And, and I was on the bus. And I had to make it home. And I also, I lived in Tudor City at the time. And so I had to walk up a bunch of stairs to even get to my apartment. I don't know how I did it. But long story short, that injury ended my career. 
I literally couldn't walk for about a month. And then once I was able to kind of get myself together, you know, I, I moved on and ended up going back to, you know, getting back in school. But and that's, that's a whole, that's another story. That's another part of the story there. But anyway, my dance career was exciting and fulfilling and it allowed me to move on to the next thing, feeling as though I had followed my passion for that. And it was okay. You know, it ended the way that it ended. I had some incredible times and opportunities, but it was time to move on. And I remember telling my, my parents after I graduated from Stanford and I told them I was going to pursue, you know, dance and theater. And I said, here's the thing. I said, I don't want to spend the rest of my life wondering what if. Right. I'm 21. I'm young. If I'm going to do this, I have to do it now. You know, a dancer, a dancer's career, you know, dancers are athletes. So you have a finite number of years in which you can actually practice your art. So if I'm going to do it, I have to do it now. I said, dad, I promise you, the Stanford degree will come in handy one day. Nobody can take it away from me. I did it. I got it. And, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be okay. But if I have got to follow what my heart is telling me and what my passion is, and for me at that time, it was theater and dance. And so I did. And to their credit, they supported me emotionally and occasionally financially <laughs> when I needed a little help. But, um, yeah, so I always tell students, find your passion and then follow it. And I've had... I've had other parents come to me and say, you know, my, my child wants to pursue a career in the arts and I'm so concerned. And I said, don't stop them. Let them fly. Let them at least try. Just be there to support. So Linda, a lot of athletes experience a very abrupt end to their career. And I know that you mentioned you had your degree, but did you have a plan B? Like did did you think beyond dance or do you have any advice for those that experience just what you went through? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I did, I did have a plan B in the back of my mind. The seed had been planted when I was dancing in Denver. I had a friend who was in television news and she had said to me, you know, when your dancing days are over for whatever reason, she said, you might really want to consider a career in journalism. And I thought, hmm. And I, you know, I guess to be honest, I had thought about that. I've always loved to write. English was my favorite subject in, in school. I was editor of my high school newspaper. So those instincts were already there. I, I just knew that, you know, the, the dance thing was so strong and so prevalent in, in my life and, and what I wanted to do that that had been kind of pushed to the back of my mind. But when my friend Lauren said that to me, I thought, okay, I'm going to file that away. And so when I couldn't dance anymore, so that, that sudden injury that ended everything. And that's when I thought, okay, time to figure out what, you know, put the plan B into action. So I ended up enrolling in a trade school it was a school for a school of broadcasting. It was on 42nd Street, right in the middle of Times Square at a time when Times Square was not the nice place that it is now. Back then there were, you know, there were drugs, there were prostitutes, there were, I mean, there was a lot of stuff really? going on. Oh yeah. It was not a, this was before they cleaned up Times Square. 
And this, my, the school that I went to was called ATS School of Broadcasting. And it was on the second floor of a building. I don't remember what building it was. And so I would just kind of, you know, put my head down and make my way up the stairs. The reason I, I decided it was okay for me to go to that school is because one of, the, one of the anchors who was on the air in New York at the time, her name is Sue Simmons, longtime NBC, very well-loved anchor person. And she had gone to that school way, way back in the day. So I thought, okay, if Sue went there, it can't be that bad. So I went and it was, it was very rudimentary. They taught you, you know, how to talk into a microphone without popping your peas, you know, just how to just real basic kind of stuff. And I quickly became sort of the star student of the school. So I was going to that school, learning kind of the basics of broadcasting and after my leg got better and I was able to maneuver again, ended up waiting tables at a restaurant on the Upper West Side of New York called Ancora, an Italian restaurant at which you had to be able to speak Italian to work there, right? Another reason <laughs> to it. learn a language, Love okay? It. Love it. So, so I, remember, I remember answering the ad in the newspaper when I saw it and it said, you know, they were hiring and you need to speak Italian. So in I walk with my black face and the look on their faces were like, you speak Italian? And then I started speaking and they, and so they hired me. And it was in that restaurant, I was working one night, a hurricane was about to hit the city of New York. And I was actually kind of pissed that we were even open. You know, I was like, why, why I'm at work? The whole city was shut down. I had one table. So I had all kinds of time to talk to this table. So I walk up to them give them the specials in Italian. I'm being, you know, overly charming and talking and blah, 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 because I have all this time on my hands. Turns out, so they look at me and they say, okay, who are you and why are you waiting tables? You're obviously educated. You speak Italian. You know, what is your story? So I, I told them, I said, yeah, you know, I told them the whole dance thing. And I said, I'm trying to move into a career in broadcasting. And I'm, you know, I'm taking classes at this school, blah, blah, blah. And they look at me and they say, well, we think we can help you. Turns out the guy was, it was a man and two women, and he was a producer for CBS News. And he had produced Dan Rather's segments on 60 Minutes when Dan was on 60 Minutes. And he said, I think I can help you. And he ended up introducing me to the director of minority recruitment at CBS. And that person convinced me that I could do the job. He said, you could get a job in TV news right now based on your Stanford degree, your communication skills, all those years of being in front of audiences. And he said, and how you look, because you have that kind of TV look. He said, but you won't know what you're doing. And there will come a time when you will have to rely on someone else to teach you and tell you how to do your job. He said, you can get a job in a small to medium-sized market right now, but you'll stall. And my advice to you is to go back to school and learn how to do this the right way. And then you'll be able to go as far as you want to, and it'll happen quickly. And so I listened to him and I decided to go back to school. And he, the recruiter, had helped put the NBC station at University of Missouri, Columbia, on the air in Columbia, Missouri. And so he had connections at the university and he helped me get in like in the middle of the academic year to start my master's in, in broadcast journalism. And that's how I ended up in J school at Mizzou. So as I listened to you, Linda, it made me laugh a little bit how you just kind of brushed over. There was a hurricane coming to New York, <laughs> which yeah. 
doesn't happen too often, but that was truly a destiny moment for you. Yeah. We're there. You you chose to be at work. You chose to be where you were supposed to be, and the door and the windows open, right. and you you went right in. You yeah. did what you were supposed to do. And not only that, another lesson to take away from your story, Linda, is just about. Um, you've given a couple of of examples of the opportunities that you've been given, just from making yourself available and open to other people. And I always say that a lot, you know, you never know what the, how the next person might be able to help you just by saying hello to someone or engaging someone like you did the lady over in, in, uh, mm-hmm. in, in, in Italy or in France. Sorry. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, there's so many life lessons. And then the other, the, the other lesson about, cause we have a lot of athletes that listen to this podcast is about usually when you're into music, art and athletics, usually your, your tribe tells you, nah, you know, don't pursue your dreams, you know, and mm. it's important that you, you know, you follow your dreams and it doesn't guarantee you that you're going to make it. But like you mentioned earlier, you can sleep at night saying that you tried and then you had in the right. back pocket that plan B, you know, so. Um, exactly, exactly. So as you talked about starting your broadcast career in Missouri, just take us a little bit of how that began and then you moved your career over to Texas. Yeah. So when I was um, in J school at Mizzou, I, you know, I pretty much had blinders on. I just wanted to just get through the the program and, and, you know, get onto my next career. Um, And the beauty of, of the program there, as I mentioned, is that the school owns the NBC affiliate in the market. So when you are going through the program there, you eventually, you know, at a certain point, get to work at the television station. And so you have the really the equivalent of your first job in TV news while you're still in school with the benefit of your instructors critiquing your every move. So it kind of takes the place of your first job in a small market, which was really just invaluable. And for someone like me who you know, was coming in into a, in the master's program, already having a bachelor's in something else and already having had some life experience, it, it just was perfect. So as I worked my way through the sequence of academics, and then I started working at the TV station, I was a one-man band reporter as, you know, we all were back then. So we would just, and, and now it's kind of returning to that, but I would literally go out and cover stories. I'd have the camera with me. I'd have the tripod. I would go set up the, the tripod, put the camera on, you know, set up the shot, sit down, do the interview, then move the camera to do the reverse shot. I mean, just all of it, do, do a stand up um, and then go back to the station, write and then edit the story. And then I also um, uh, auditioned to be an anchor person at the station. So I ended up anchoring the news as well. So I was anchoring and as I, as I got to the, um, you know, to the station and started doing all these things, um, I had, I got a, um, a phone call from one of my previous instructors. So the guy who had, had taught me broadcast 101, my very first semester at Mizzou, ended up leaving after that and going to work at the CBS affiliate in St. Louis, KMOV. And he was the assistant news director there. So as I progressed through the sequence and then I started working at the TV station, he reached out to me and he said, send me a tape. I want to see what your work looks like. And I thought, oh, this is great. Michael, you know, is maintaining his, 
relationship with me to critique my work and everything. And, you know, I really, really appreciated that. So I sent him a tape of the reporting that I had been doing. And and I hear back from him. He said, okay, send me another tape. So I sent him another tape. And then he said, I want you to come see me on a weekend, drive to St. Louis and come see me on a weekend. So they ended up hiring me to work as a weekend reporter for one day. I worked on Saturdays while I was still in school. So Columbia is like a two hour drive from Columbia to to St. Louis. So I would drive on Friday night from Columbia to St. Louis after my classes. Fortunately, I had family in St. Louis. I stayed with my aunt and uncle, slept at their house Friday night, Saturday morning, I would get up and go to the station and I'd work all day as a reporter on the air. And then I would drive back to Columbia on Sunday and then anchor the news in Columbia at the NBC station on Sunday night. And I did that for the last six months of my time at Mizzou. And at the end of that, KMOV hired me. So I had the job as a general assignment reporter five days a week working at KMOV as my first gig coming right out of college or out of, out of graduate school. So that's how that whole thing worked out. And there's another lesson in there, Drew. I know you're pulling out the lessons, so I'm going to pull out another one. Love it. One. So I mentioned Michael, the, the broadcast 101 instructor. So when I first started his class, Michael and I were like oil and water. We did not get along. And I don't even remember what it was or why he just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. But something in me said, Linda, get your stuff together. Stop it. And I started really, I changed my mindset. I don't know. I really don't know what it was. I don't know if it was because I hadn't been in school for a while. And now all of a sudden I've got this professor who is holding my feet to the fire and challenging me in ways that I had not been challenged in, in, in quite some time. For whatever, re- whatever reason, I changed my mindset in terms of how I dealt with him. And so what started out as a very contentious, not contentious, but there was just a lot of friction there. It was not a good relationship. But by the time the semester ended, we were good. We were really good. And he then had started to invest in me because I had changed my mindset. I got out of my own way. Okay. And I don't even know what it was in me that said, Linda, you need to, but if I had not done that and he had not, you know, if we had not had the kind of relationship that we did at the end of that semester, when he left, I didn't know he was going to be leaving. He got a job offer and he left school and went to St. Louis. And he's the one that, that brought me in and gave me my first job gave me that opportunity to have major market experience on my resume before I even got out of school. So even if they hadn't hired me, I would have been so much farther ahead of my peers in terms of competing for a job because I had major market experience on my resume tape. That's, that's so, incredible. Yeah, it and, is. It, I, mean, I mean, it really is. Yeah. Sometimes you just have to change your perspective in certain yeah. situations. And and my favorite part about it, and, and we hear this every single episode in the journey to success, like there has to be some type of work ethic drive that's required. And you talk about you every weekend driving from Columbia to St. Louis out there, you know, grinding, hustling you know, to try to make it happen. And that's what it's about, you know, especially in today's 
time with social media, you know, everyone wants everything given and they want it to happen so quickly. But Mm -hmm. the work, you can't skip the struggle and the work is always required. It's so true, Drew. So true. Absolutely. A couple of things, Linda, you're always going to have haters in your life, but there are some Mm -hmm. people who are brought to your life to sharpen or to smooth out your rough edges. And you have to have the discernment as you did with Michael to know who to release and who to take the journey with. If you had released Michael, we may not even be sitting here today. So I think that's a lesson for some people. And Drew mentioned the hustle. And I was listening (laughs) to you as you were talking about the things that you were doing that no one would ever see you do. And I have a question for you. I just have to ask you since I have you. You're a naturally beautiful woman. On the air, you're flawless. Do you do your own hair, makeup, and styling, or does it really just depend on the market you're in? So the short answer is yes. I always do my own hair, makeup, and styling. Okay. So when I was on the air at KPRC, so I I have a hairdresser that has done my hair for almost the entire time that I've lived in Houston, but she doesn't do my hair every day, like right before I go on the air or something like that. So it wasn't that at all. I just, you know, keep my hair, but I, I know how to do my own hair. So I did my own hair. I did my own makeup. I dressed myself. You know, I didn't have any stylist or anything like that. Now, some stations back when I was on the air, there were some stations in Houston that had makeup artists for the on-air staff. KPRC just didn't. So I did it myself. So it really depends on the station. In a local market, some will have makeup artists for their on-air talent, some will not. By the time you get to the network level, I mean, everybody that you see at the network level, they all have, you know, they have the full posse, if you will, of makeup, hair, stylists, you know, they, they have all that good stuff. But no, I, everything I do is, you know, I do it myself. So you landed the job in Missouri. Or in St. Louis. In St. Louis. Mm -hmm. And then how did you end up in Houston, where we love you so much here in our fair city? (laughs) Oh, thank you. And grew up Um, watching you as well. (laughs) I must say. Yeah. Oh, I always love hearing that, even though it makes me feel old. But (laughs) it's okay. (laughs) So when I started in St. Louis, I signed a two-year contract. And uh, I was a general assignment reporter. And quickly became a fill-in anchor because I let it be known that I wanted to do that. I wanted to eventually become an anchor. And sort of toward the end of that contract, as I started to look around and decide if I was if I wanted to stay there and see what my opportunities were, I really didn't see that there was going to be an opportunity for me to move into an anchor position just because of the lay of the land where, where people's contracts, you know, fell and just didn't look like there was going to be an opportunity for me. So I started to look around around the country. And um, I applied for a job in, uh, in San Francisco. I flew out to San Francisco and interviewed there. I think it was for uh, KRON, which at the time was the NBC affiliate. And then I applied for the weekend anchor position at KPRC here in Houston and flew out here. They were hiring for weekend anchor and education reporter. So anchor Saturday, Sunday, report three days a week on education. And I was one of, I think they told me they had about 200 submissions for that. And I flew out here to interview. And my then fiance, Lou, my now husband of 30 years, flew out here with me. 
And I got the job. And that's how I ended up at, at KPRC in Houston. So was Houston ever on your radar in your earlier years as a place you wanted to live or it was really job driven? It was really job driven. Although I have some family roots in Corpus Christi on my dad's side of the family, but I had never really been to Texas, had never aspired to live or work here. I was excited because KPRC um, had such a great reputation in the industry for local stations. When I got the job, all of my colleagues at KMOV in St. Louis were so excited for me. They were like, oh my gosh, you're going to a great station. And you know, they're, they're known for doing really quality journalism. And um, so this was 1989. And I say that because it's right around the time when the business started just beginning to change a little bit. And that's a whole nother conversation. But at the time I started working for KPRC, it was still owned by the Hobby family was owned by HNC Communications. And then subsequently, Post Newsweek bought the station. And Post Newsweek is now called Graham Holdings. So but it's the same company. But yeah, the station had a, a wonderful reputation nationally in journalism circles. And, and it was a big deal that I had gotten the job and that I you know, had the opportunity to come here. And it's been nothing but wonderful. You said you came to Houston in 89 and scared to ask how old were you? I, I was gonna I was gonna say I was <laughs> I born in 82. So <laughs> I literally grew up watching you in my grandma's house because you know the grandmas, grandpas, they watched the news. And so you were always on the TV. But I just thought it was really cool and unique how here is this this black woman here as a news anchor, and that wasn't common back then. And so I just always thought that was really cool and that always stood out to me. But from a diversity and inclusion lens, like over your course of your career, how have you seen the media industry kind of change in that realm? Um, Yeah, and Liza, if I can add to that, it wasn't just you on the anchor desk. Didn't you also anchor with Cambrell Marshall for a point? So, okay, let me me answer both of those. First, well, yes. So Cambrell and I worked together. So at the time when I was on the anchor desk, I started off co-anchoring with Ron Stone on the 6, 6 p.m. I started, well, actually, when I started on weekends, I was working with a guy named Tim Lake, who is now in Philadelphia. So Tim and I were, were worked together for weekends, and then he left. And then when I got promoted to prime time, I started working with Ron Stone and Bill Biesa. So I worked with Ron at 6 and Bill at 10. And then Ron retired like six months after I started anchoring in prime time, Ron retired and Bill took over. So then I anchored with Bill the whole time. He was my co-anchor. So Cambrell came several years later to do, you know, he does everything. I can't remember now because I think he was doing sports at the time. And then he went back to school and while he was still doing all his stuff and got his meteorology degree and then he moved into weather. So yes, we worked together. We were on the anchor desk and, you know, so we, we did a lot. We did do a lot together and, and we're very, very good friends to this day. We're very good friends. And we even have a family connection. Somebody on his side of the family married somebody distant on my side of the family. So technically we're now related, <laughs> but from the DEI perspective, obviously there are more people of color in front of the camera now than there were when I started in the business in, you know, when I came here in 1989. I remember when I was growing up in Chicago, you know, the anchor people who were on the air and there were very few who looked like me. 
there are more now. And, and it's not even, you know, I don't even think it's unusual now to see two black anchors. Like here in Houston, we have Mia Gradney and Len Cannon on KHOU, two black anchors. Not that long ago, that would have been unheard of. You would never see two black anchors as the main team. It would mm-hmm. always be, it would either be a man and a woman or a black and a white or a Hispanic and a white or an Asian and a white. You would never see two black anchors together. So, uh, you know, kudos to, to KHOU and its parent company, Tegna, for, you know, saying, hey, you know, these are the two people who deserve the job and they've got a following and let's do it, you know, because that, would, that was not the norm. I will say that while we have seen what looks like progress in front of the camera, there is much less progress behind the camera, especially at the executive levels of station ownership, station leadership and management, not as diverse as it needs to be. I don't know what the numbers are right now, but there's still work to do there. And you were with KPRC, Linda, when the city of Houston itself was changing so much. We were becoming so much more diversified. You were here for a span of time. What were some of your favorite stories to cover? And then what were some of the toughest stories that you encountered? Oh, boy. Well, you know, I had an opportunity to cover some really big stories, which was great. I mean, I, you know, I covered inaugurations. You know, I covered Clinton's first inauguration. And I think I covered President Bush's Bush 43. I think I did his second one. I also did his his gubernatorial inauguration. And I covered the opening of the Bush Library. And I covered one of my most fun stories was covering President Bush 41's 80th birthday celebration, during which he went skydiving. And two days or the day before he went skydiving, I got to dive with his partner. And that was a blast. That was really fun. Scary as all get out. I still can't believe I did it. And I probably wouldn't do it again. But I did it. I got to skydive with the Golden Knights. So that was fun. My most memorable from a really personal perspective is the shuttle flight of Dr. Mae Jemison, the first woman of color in space. So Mae and I were Stanford roommates to this day, are very, very, very close friends. And the way that the universe works was just incredible. I remember being in still in J school at Mizzou when the announcement came that she was in the astronaut corps. I remember being in my apartment, the TV was on, Dr. Mae Jemison just appointed to the astronaut corps. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God. And by the time she, you know, she moved to Houston and started her training. By the time she got assigned to a shuttle flight, I was working at KPRC in Houston. So I got to cover her flight. Unbelievable. And that was, you talk about unbelievable. I get chills now, even just thinking about it. So I did a whole series of reports leading up to the launch including some, some personal reflections. May was a bridesmaid in my wedding. So in the piece, one of the pieces I did had the two of us getting down on the dance floor at my wedding reception. And that was part of the story. And then I went to, you know, the Kennedy Space Center and covered her flight and was doing a stand up with the shuttle taking off behind me. And as I looked up, to watch it go, I was so overcome with emotion. I just, I mean, the tears were just streaming down my face and I was crying, so happy 
and, and wonderfully excited for her because I knew she was doing exactly what she wanted to do. But this was also post-Challenger. And so I was worried. I was scared for her safety. And I just needed to hear go, you know, shuttle go with throttle up at that critical moment when the boosters separate. And once I knew that was okay, I was like, okay, she's, you know, they got this and it's, it's all good. So it was very emotional. And then I was at Ellington Field when she came home that day. I've got a wonderful picture of the two of us standing at Ellington Field with the plane behind us and I'm interviewing her and, you know, went to her house, you know, took her home that day at, when she was coming home from space. And so that was, that's definitely the most memorable. Probably the most difficult. Or one of the most difficult was covering Sydney Seward was a news anchor at another local station here, an independent station, Channel 51. And Sydney had breast cancer. And she approached me because she was chronicling her battle on video. And she worked for an independent station that didn't really have a big audience. And so she approached me and KPRC agreed that we would partner. And so I ended up doing a year's worth of reporting. I think it was a total of 11 or 12 stories that I did on her, starting with her brain surgery because the cancer had spread to her lungs and her brain. And so I started the journey like the night before her brain surgery and did a series of reports and she ultimately passed away. And the day that I had to do the report of her death was excruciating. That was very difficult. So, you know, there are all kinds of incredible opportunities that, that I've had, you know, to tell stories that have touched people and helped their lives in some way, shape or form. And, and for that, I'm really, really grateful. Yeah, it sounds like it's a, a roller coaster of emotions from story to story, from mm-hmm. day to day. But mm-hmm. while you're on the storytelling, we need to hear the MJ story. I mean, that's my <laughs> idol growing up, Michael Jordan. I mean, someone who was I, was in his presence, I'm assuming. Like, I got to hear this. No, yeah, Linda, we let it go for 57 <laughs> minutes. She 57, oh, there. my God. My husband's going to die when he hears this. So, so no. I have never met MJ as much as I would like to, but this is really under the heading of TMI, but I'm just going to go for it. So one night, my husband and I were obviously in bed together sleeping and he wakes me up and he says, you just said, oh, Michael, oh, Michael. And I said, what? (laughs) He said, you were dreaming about Michael Jordan. We had just watched the game. We had just watched the game before we had gone to bed. And clearly, I have a major crush on Michael Jordan because I was dreaming about him and saying his name in my sleep with my husband lying next to me. So that is not a good thing. I mean, so if, if, if my wife woke up screaming Michael Jordan, I would be like, yeah, I would be cheering her on. Yes, go, Michael. I mean, I love Michael Jordan that much. <laughs> oh, my God. No, I was I let me tell you, I so when I moved here, the Bulls were in the middle of their their, you know, their crazy, crazy time. Right. And they were winning back to back to back to back. And I've actually got some videotape of me. I was, I was still anchoring uh, on weekends and there was a, a Bulls game on that night and, and it was going late. So I'm sitting on the anchor desk waiting 
for the game to be over so we can do the news. And little did I know the control room started rolling tape on me and my reactions to the game. And it's hilarious. It is absolutely hilarious because I was a diehard Bulls fan. And now, of course, I'm a Rockets fan. I've, I've been here too long to, to not be a Rockets fan. But um, yeah, that's that's my MJ story. So, Michael, if you're out there, I still want to meet you. <laughs> I still want to meet you. Obviously, I'm a huge fan. And um, so, yeah, I love LeBron, too, but definitely MJ. Definitely MJ. So no dreams about LeBron yet? <laughs> no, I haven't. I haven't had any dreams about LeBron. Sorry, LeBron. OK, <laughs> but whatever. <laughs> I was not expecting that story, Linda. I'm sure that was you the were. the best laugh I had today. <laughs> Drew, I'll let you say sure you Oh, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, anyone who's in the Houston community, we know about your heart, Linda, and how much you generously share with our community. Just tell us about your volunteer and outreach efforts in the community. Well, you know, I've, I've done so much um, to support lots of different communities in multiple ways through the years, but um, I think probably the most significant impact has been through the scholarship fund, the Linda Laurel Scholarship Fund that my husband and I co-founded 30 years ago. And we've given over four and a half million dollars to Houston area students who may have average grades because of the challenging circumstances they were born into. So that's kind of what our mission is. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm very, very passionate about children and education, and that's how we have chosen to kind of give back. Um, so through, through the scholarship fund and the philanthropy of that, um, it's been a, a, big, a big part of our lives. And, uh, and then more recently, um, you know, with COVID and it's, you know, we're kind of in a bit of a hiatus with the scholarship fund right now, figuring out what the next thing is going to be because it it's just changed everything you know dealing with this yeah, pandemic right it, it really has and you know working from home now and i launched a podcast as you know you guys have been guests on my podcast and so i'm um, just trying to do my thing yeah there's nothing better than being in a position to to, to give back so you know we mm. love to we love to hear that yeah, I, I grew up, you know, watching my parents give back when, when I was, you know, a young child living in Chicago. And I just remember my, my mother always telling me that when you it, it's when you have given of yourself that you've given the most. And and I really try to, to live that and try to model that as, as best I can. Um, so yeah, that's beautiful. I just feel like there's so much we have to have to give to each other. You know, that's a part of your <laughs> brand, Linda, a part of your legacy. You're oh, always, I hope so. Always been giving. So yeah. thank you for that. I hope so. I hope so. I, um, you know, I, I mentioned the podcast, um, Our Voices Matter. And um, one of the things that I'm, I'm really enjoying with that is, is just having the conversations um, that sometimes are difficult to have and just kind of shedding some light on people's lived experiences and helping to do my part to try and bring us together. And, and I just think that's so important in this time that we're living in and with all the challenges that we're facing. So that's my focus on giving right now is kind of giving to our collective humanity and helping to share those stories that I believe have the power to bring us closer together. Yeah. Well, one thing that I love about your podcast, I was just listening to an episode last week about the incident where the hair incident and just the emotion on that episode was just, you know, 
It's tough. It's tough. But um, but yeah, yeah. We, we we love your podcast. We love following it here. Linda, what do you do when you're not working? What do I do when I'm not working? I love to work out. What I really miss, I miss going to the gym and taking my classes. I'm, you know, I still that dancer in me that likes to, you know, be in front of a mirror with an instructor in front of me, you know, either giving me choreography or helping me, you know, go through my cardio moves or whatever. I miss the energy of being in a room with other people. So I'm trying to, you know, do the best I can here at home, but I do a lot of walking. I, you know, love to dance. Uh, I love to read. Just one of my favorite things is just to kind of curl up with a good book, music, catching up on good movies. You know, I'm, I'm pretty basic. <laughs> yeah, the simple things. Uh, yeah. But sometimes yeah. I think we even took for granted before 2020. Yes. And I miss yeah. entertaining. I miss having people come to my house and I love, I love to cook and I, I love to, you know, set a beautiful table and invite people over. And, you know, I miss that. And I, I can't wait to be able to do that again. Obviously it's kind of difficult to predict the future, but what's next for you? Ooh, what's next for me? Well, I have to say I've moved my office into my home and I really like it. I like working from home. And I don't think I'm going to go back into an office space. So that's pretty certain. I'm able to, my, my assistant comes here and works with me and, you know, I'm, we're able to socially distance and mask and all of that. And so I'm going to continue working from home. I'm really focused on growing the podcast. I really want to in, increase the audience and just get more guests and, and just foster these conversations that I think are so critically important to bringing us together as, as humans so there's that, and I'm, I'm really growing the segment of my business that allows me to have conversations or to guide conversations with companies uh, around race and diversity and inclusion. I've had some companies reach out and say, you know, I know we have to have this conversation. We don't know where to start. We're not really quite sure what to do. And so I'm enjoying, um, it's kind of an extension of the podcast but at a, at a cor- in a corporate setting and helping people to feel safe enough to share their stories, whatever that is, um, and to have some real and honest dialogue around people's lived experience and then understanding how that translates into the workplace. So I'm in really enjoying that work. It's very fulfilling to see how people can come out of conversations like that and feel closer to their colleagues and be able to have conversations as they're passing each other in the hallway or on a Zoom call or whatever, to have a different perspective and a different understanding than they previously had. So that's very rewarding to me. Um, So I'm continuing that work and I'm continuing a lot of the the video production work that I'm doing, telling stories for for companies in different ways. Um, And and then most recently, I started working uh, with a platform called Encourage X that I'm actually a, a, a small part of. And I have a collection on that. And it's all about giving people the language and the tools to encourage each other in any life situation, whatever that might be. And so I'm focused on, on growing that as well. So my, my mission, my mantra is all about unity and togetherness uh, with empathy at the core. I think empathy is the path forward. And where can our listeners learn more about Encourage X? 
ev- links to everything is on my website, lindalorel.com. So that's the easiest thing to do, mynname.com. And you can find a link to Encourage X, to the podcast, to the scholarship fund, and to my production company, Laurel Media. There you go. Well, Linda, listening to your story today, it's been extremely inspiring. And, you know, we know that you love to dance and like to work out. But finally, when you like to get in that zone, what's on your playlist? Ooh, so gosh, I've, I've got very eclectic music tastes. I mean, I've got some everybody on my playlist from, um, oh, let's see, Luther Vandross to Adele, to Iggy Azalea, to Beyonce, to, oh my gosh, um, who did I, I've got to pull up my, I have, look at my playlist and see, you know, so I have, I have one playlist that's workout, okay? So that's when I'm when I'm working out. And then I have another one that I call Mellow Yellow <laughs> when I'm just <laughs> chilling. OK, so I've got Kelly Clarkson on here, Maroon 5. I mean, it's just it, I, I'm all over the place. I'm all over the place. But I just I love music and it it kind of depends, obviously, on the mood that I'm in. But when I'm when I'm working, like really writing, I prefer silence. I really do. It's hard for me to um to, to write, especially. It's hard for me to write with music in the background. Some people, you know, can just vibe away to any kind of music as they're working and writing. I can't, I, I, I need silence. Great taste. And I totally agree <laughs> about that when you're right. Like, I mean, I start weaving off and want to, want to sing too much. So yeah, I agree with yeah. you, I need silence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm just I'm I'm you know I'm remembering the lyrics and think and singing along and not at all paying attention to my train of thought. Yeah, exactly. So I just exactly. I just uh, downloaded something from a uh, Leslie Odom Jr. So uh-huh. I love that, and I've got of course the entire the entire album of uh, Hamilton. I've got that on my playlist. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, it's just you know, I, I love all kinds of music. Great taste. Well, we appreciate your time today, Linda. I mean, like I said, again, listening to your story, so many life lessons, so many gems that you dropped us today. So we appreciate you. Oh, thank you so much, Drew. And I can't believe you were seven when you first started watching me. I'm never going to forget that. Yes. (laughs) Well, and Linda, he admires you so much. And I'm just like, he's not making this better (laughs) by sharing all of I love it. It makes me, it warms my heart and it makes me feel good. And and I'm so honored to, to know you and to, and to, you know, to be a part of this podcast. I really appreciate you reaching out and I look forward to the day when I can see you both and hug you in person. So, you know, next time you're in the States, Drew, maybe, uh, maybe COVID will be over and we'll get a chance to meet face to face. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks, Linda. Thank you, guys. We appreciate you, Linda. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks to everyone for tuning in. To the athletes, keep being the best you can be. Run your race with excellence. To the parents of athletes, let's continue to support our children with patience, grace, and understanding, learning to recognize how to truly become the guides and the stewards that we are supposed to be. To everyone, be willing to share your experiences to help others along their paths and always be open to the wisdom that comes your way. For more information about the 21 Podcast, 21 Media, and services provided by Train Harder 21, visit the website at drewlasker.com. 
and follow us across all social media platforms. Remember to add this podcast to your playlist, subscribe, rate, and review. Until next episode of 21, train harder.